Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 1 through 11. Uh, this, is, this is an intense passage. Uh, we're going to be dealing uh, with the judgment, God's judgment, on two members of the first church, uh, Anna, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating passage because it's the first sin that is dealt with uh, in the book of Acts in the early church. Uh, the, I mean, sin within the church that's impacted and affecting the church. It's also one of the few times uh, in Scripture there, there are moments where God's judgment is swift and instantaneous, and this is one of those moments. Uh, and it is a, it's a challenging passage for us to take in, but I think it's important also for us to recognize uh, something that Scripture is utterly clear about, uh, that A, God is just, and we need our God to be just. We just don't like it when that justice comes against the the injustice in our own lives. Uh, secondly, uh, that God hates sin. And the reason that he hates sin is because he loves you. And he hates anything that robs him of his ability to have relationship with you. He also hates sin because it destroys, especially sin that goes unchecked within, within the community of faith because sin leavens. We do not, we aren't born into a vacuum but we also need to understand we do not sin into a vacuum. Sin does not just impact and affect our lives. It affects the lives of those around us. Because remember what sin is. Sin is a rebellion against God's sovereign rule over our lives. It is also a rejection of his grace. Uh, it, replaces, it replaces Christ with self. That's the essence of sin. And so let us read these passages together, and I'll make some comments, and then we're going to kind of consider... Um, why the judgment is necessary. Uh, we're going to consider kind of the, the essence of, of Ananias and Sapphira's sin and what we can learn from that. And then, uh, and then ultimately, uh, the importance of, of the outcome, which is that the fear of the Lord came over the church and why the fear of the Lord is truly the fear that casts out all other fears. And so uh, if you'll look with me, uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 1. Remember, this comes on the heels, the close of chapter 4 is declaring how all these members of the church were so overwhelmed by God's goodness and the gospel of Jesus that they began selling off their properties. Not, this wasn't a request made by the church, this was something they did willingly, uh, this is something they did freely, and they gave the proceeds, to the, uh, laid them at the apostles' feet, who then gave to those in need in the church. And so everyone had everything in common, this was because when the gospel truly grabs a hold of the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, it creates an other-oriented society. Um, and so this is why the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is treated so severely, uh, I believe, as a lesson of God's holiness um, and a true uh, look at the impacts of sin upon the community that we need to take into consideration. So, but a man named Ananias with his wife's Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, there's nothing wrong with owning the land. It was yours to own, which Peter is clearly stating 
something that there is, I think, something we can read between the lines here because he goes on to say, and after it was sold, was it still not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your, in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter, clearly uh, by Peter's uh, uh, con- uh, confronting of Ananias, first of all, Peter, uh, we, we see something that's really key here uh, in the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, that the Holy Spirit has given Peter uh, given him a word of knowledge. He's given him divine, supernatural insight into what has occurred here. In fact, I just watched uh, a TED Talk this morning as I was preparing for the message. At four in the morning, I was watching a TED Talk called The Truth About Lying. And one of the things that they've come to discover through, through studies is there is no detectable evidence that's consistent on how to tell if someone's lying to you. That people have often thought you just look into the eyes and you can tell if someone's lying, and that's actually not true. And they said that the, the detection is dependent upon the level, of, uh, for example, a lie detecting test. It doesn't detect the lie, it detects the fear around being caught for the lie. So if someone doesn't feel guilty about lying, it's often possible to actually not fail a lie detector's test, because if they don't feel guilt, then they don't feel afraid. Um, and so this is a reality. So there's a supernatural intervention. God has given Peter a word of knowledge in this moment to confront sin. I think it's interesting because it actually tells us something about the way that a community is meant to deal with one another, that when there's true love, there's true, there's true commitment to one another, we can even speak difficult truths into one another's lives when we are so yielded to the Spirit that the Spirit can actually reveal things. And I've had speak, people speak word of knowledge. Prophecy is not always positive. Uh, in case you haven't read the prophets of the Old Testament. And I've had people speak difficult words into my life that were a rebuke of sin, uh, that they did not have, that they were not privy to knowledge-wise. Like I, have a, I actually had someone come to me specifically at the church I worked at before I started Door of Hope and, and give me a word, and they didn't even realize that they were rebuking me for a very specific sin, uh, the, just the sin of backbiting uh, and the sin of spiritual pride. And and he goes, I don't know why God gave me this verse for you. And then I'm like, trying not to cry. Like, I do. Dang it. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where a legitimate word of knowledge was given to someone specifically for correction. Uh, and so that's one component. So I think that's interesting because once again, we see the, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works. Another thing that is in this passage that I think is fascinating, fascinating is that there's a revelation again about the Holy Spirit. And that is, Peter accuses Ananias of doing what? Lying to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to a non-person. That the Holy Spirit is not a force to be wielded, but he is someone to be worshipped. And I think that this, is once again, is important. He is Lord over the church. Uh, and, and I think that this is important for us to see. But more importantly, I think, is that Peter is clearly um, challenging Ananias, probably because Ananias and Sapphira had probably saw that, that, that all these people were selling their, selling their land and giving all of the proceeds to the church, and they had said, we're going to give everything that we... There are, they, he is holding them probably to a promise that they made that they are not keeping. He sees through the lie, in, uh, infused with the Spirit, and is challenging uh, the motivation behind it, the heart behind it, and the deception in the center of it. And look what he goes on to say. Uh, you have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it, heard of it. And that's the first time it states that. So 
Here, I believe this is a supernatural uh, uh, judgment that comes. I don't believe that he just, because he was so scared, he just had a heart attack and died there on the spot. That's maybe possible if it wasn't for the fact that his wife dies a few hours later. Uh, so we, we see this as divine judgment on the church and the first sin uh, mentioned in the early church. It also gives us insight into Luke's uh, desire to be honest about the inner workings of the church. Uh, he, he reveals its blemishes uh, as well as its victories. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And then again in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Wow, that is an intense passage. Now, it's often um, our tendency when we read things that we're uncomfortable with in the, in the scriptures is just to move on quickly. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, as a preacher, I don't have that freedom. Uh, and, and I think that it's dangerous to move on quickly when you're uncomfortable with a, with a passage, specifically when you're dealing with passages in the Bible that deal with God's legitimate judgment. And like I said in the beginning, we want God to judge evil. Do we not? When we see injustice in the world, do we not expect God to be a just God who is opposed to the wicked and hates evil? And he hates it when he sees people hurting people. Sin is an abomination to God because it robs him of what he loves, which is people. And so it would be unjust for God to not judge sin. But we're also grateful that the scripture declares a God who is actually much slower to anger than we are. In fact, when God declares his own character to Moses, when he hides him in the cleft of the rock, what he declares is that he is a God that is full of mercy, compassion, and love, who is slow to anger. And in fact, if you read through the accounts of the Bible, there are moments where God's judgment comes swiftly. But most of the time, the scales tip toward mercy, and we need to understand that. The reason that these passages are shocking is actually because they don't occur that often, which makes them stand out even more intensely. But I want us to see this, this reality right out of the gate, because what is the church? The church takes the place of the temple. We, as individuals who are followers of Jesus Christ, we ourselves have become what? Temples of the living God that God has come by his spirit to make his home within us, that we then become the embodiment of the work and the continuation of the work of Jesus Christ. Judgment is necessary because God is holy. And in fact, in 1 Peter 4.17, it says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I like what N.T. Wright said about this passage. He said, the early Christian community, without even trying, was functioning somewhat like the temple itself. It was a place of holiness, a holiness so dramatic and acute that every blemish was magnified. He goes on to say, if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. 
seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. It's a profound statement. Now, when we look at this passage of this severe judgment, there are other moments that I think there are parallels to this in the Old Testament. You remember in Leviticus chapter 10, when the sons of Aaron, um, they open up the temple and they come to bring this, uh, they bring the censers in. And it says that uh, Nadab and Abihu offered profane fire. And in that moment, they were struck dead. They were burned alive uh, by the wrath of God. An intense and quick Uh, final judgment. Aaron wasn't even allowed to grieve for them in that moment, uh, but had to continue the work of the ministry of the temple. God is holy. And remember what we say about holiness. Holiness is as much about our dedication to God as it is about our separation from sin. Uh, Joshua chapter 7, this probably has the greatest parallel to the passage we're at because the children of Israel were getting ready to inherit the land that God has promised to Uh, promised to them. And you remember, they go into Jericho. And when Jericho falls, what happens? God gives very clear instruction that they were not to take any profane items uh, from Jericho. And yet one person within the army of Israel, Achan, uh, whose name literally means troubler, took some treasure and hid it in his tent. And when Israel went back out to fight their next battle, they lost the battle. And Joshua tears his his clothes, and he's, and he's repenting before God, and, and God tells him that there is sin within the camp, and they are to find that sin. And so they go through the families, and they discover Achan confesses to Joshua that he indeed has taken this item that he was told not to, and the judgment is severe. In fact, they take him out to a valley, which becomes called the Valley of Achor. It's where Door of Hope gets its name. I will give you the Valley of Achor as a Door of Hope. Um, And it becomes a symbol, uh, even a shadow, a type of what's coming as a place where sin is judged. And Achan and his whole family is stoned to death by uh, by Israel. Uh, And the sin was put out of Israel. And then Israel was then again allowed by God to have victory. Um, And it becomes a picture for us. It's a difficult picture. And these are issues that we have to deal with, that God addresses sin severely at times to remind us that he is a holy God and that sin is something that must be judged. Second Samuel chapter six, you remember when the ark uh, had been taken uh, by the Philistines and when, they're, when it's being brought back, uh, being brought back to Jerusalem, uh, the ark is being carried and the men that are carrying it um, stumble and a man puts his hand out and touches the ark to stabilize it and he's struck dead immediately. Uh, as a picture of God's holiness. And David was actually disgruntled at God uh, for, for striking this man dead. Second Chronicles uh, 26, King Uzziah uh, is struck with leprosy when he goes into the, into the holy place in the temples. Uh, and these are elements where God reveals his holiness in ways that make us uncomfortable. But what we need to understand is that there is no cheap grace for us and that God does take sin seriously. And one of the challenges within the church today is our desire to kind of whitewash the severity of God's judgment upon sin. And this passage, and I think in, this, in the church, this was a statement to the church that God cares deeply about how we live our lives in light of the gospel. Now, one thing I want to point out in every one of these stories, this is my personal view There are men uh, and women that I respect deeply that disagree with this view, but I would argue that not one of these passages where 
uh, where the severe judgment comes quickly is evidence that it has to do with eternal destination. I think it has to do with judgment in the moment. Uh, In fact, uh, I would look at Ananias and Sapphira, and clearly Peter, in saying that they lied to the Holy Spirit, is acknowledging that they were, one, they were members of the community who were born again and had the Spirit, uh, or they couldn't have lied to him or grieved him. Uh, they, had been, they had been brought into salvation, but God's judgment is a quick and severe judgment, and I think that it's very much in line with other passages in the New Testament, mysterious passages. One of them in 1 Corinthians, you remember when Paul is giving instruction on communion, he said when people take communion in an inappropriate manner, and the, the Corinthian church was using communion to get drunk, and they were... Uh, and, he said, like, how could you even allow this? And he goes, do you not know that some of you are sick because of this, physically sick, and others of you have even gone to sleep because of this, specifically speaking to death? I think 1 John 5, 16, he says, there is sin that leads to death, speaking specifically of physical death. And I think that there are times when judgment comes in a severe way. It's almost as if God says, you're mine, and you have grieved the spirit to the point where you are no longer usable on this earth. We do not want to be those people that it refers to those in 1 Corinthians 3 as those who, who stand before the judgment seat of God. Our works are tested by fire. Everything burns up and we, it says that we enter in smelling like smoke. That's not the person that you want to be. But I think that this is a reality. So when I read this passage, I, I remove from it, I, I think that the judgment is severe. It is instantaneous, but I think that it's dangerous to begin to, to speculate on eternal destiny. Um, of these people. Uh, I think that God is quick to show in, 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 uh, in this moment uh, that he is a holy God, but most of the time uh, what you see in the scriptures is actually the saints praying for, Lord, how long will you allow the wicked to continue? How long before your judgment actually comes? Because he's slow to anger, because he has revealed his heart in the revelation of his character through Jesus. Uh, and everything that we need to know about God is wrapped up in his final statement of his son. So what is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? And really what I see in this is that if the church is meant to be kind of the temple of the living God, we become literally the carriers of the spirit and the revelation of the spirit within us and the witness to the world is played out in how we function together. What was the early church marked by? It was marked by a radical generosity that was birthed from a right understanding of the gospel. And so the first thing that I see is that within the story of Ananias and Sapphira is that they clearly were marked by greed. They may have claimed that they were going to give all that they had to the early church, but when they sold what they had, and maybe they saw that it was a lot more than they expected to get, I don't know how real estate worked back then, uh, but I'm, I, I figure that people seem to function the same way, and that, that we love our things, and we love our stuff, and I think that this is one of those pictures that shows that, and these are all these sins uh, which are connected to that overarching reality of sin, a rebellion against God's rule. Sin is when I make myself the center of my own universe. And what you have here is greed that disrupts generosity. They became a people that were enslaved by a love of things rather than firm in their love for people. If I could borrow from John Piper, who says speaking of this passage, that God's heart for his church is that we are free from the love of things 
that we might be firm in our love for people. And the early church was radical in its desire to care for one another. And I think what you see here is a, it begins with a greed that disrupts generosity. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen, this passage is not about you not being able to, it's not uh, self-induced poverty. That's not what this text is about. It's not, Peter is not saying your sin is that you kept something for yourself. The sin was that greed caused them to be dishonest about it and then actually present themselves as hypocrites, uh, portraying themselves as more spiritual than they actually were. And that kind of threefold reality. But I think that this is important for us to ask that same question because how we spend what God has blessed us with tells, tells us a lot about ourselves. How we, how we utilize our time, our money, um, our, our, our energy, our gifts reveals a tremendous amount about our understanding of the gospel. If we truly understood the radical generosity of God toward us in Jesus, it should produce in us naturally if we are truly being led by the Holy Spirit to live sacrificially. And there is a, there is a, a pretense of some sacrifice, but there is a withholding uh, when there has already been, excuse me, a commitment uh, to give and now there is a keeping back. I love what, uh, this is a great rule of thumb, uh, because God has given us the things of the world to enjoy, but I think when those things become our gods, this is the problem. This is where it begins to truly break down our understanding of the gospel. And I think one of the, the great uh, quotes that I have, uh, have always held to you is from George MacDonald, who says, I love beautiful things, but I am content to live without them. And the reason I love that quote is because I actually hate it in the flesh because my quote would be, I love beautiful things and gosh darn it, I love beautiful things. And I think that this is the reality that we have to consistently confront the weakness of the flesh that desires to continually put self upon the throne of our hearts. But think about how much satisfaction you have uh, when you get the newest toy, the newest, the newest iPhone, the newest shoes, the newest pants, the newest jacket, the newest car, the newest home, and those things quickly, the joy of them, I think when we allow the, the, the obsession with stuff to dominate our existence, it's so fleeting. It doesn't last. And, and immediately, once you have what it is that you thought you couldn't live without, you just are on to the next thing. And often the things that you thought you couldn't live without, you don't even care about three months later. Some of you don't even care about a week later. And so this is a reality uh, that I think has marked Ananias and Sapphira. But the real, I think the real sin uh, that is being played out is the outcome of this greed caused them to move toward falsehood, toward lying. And we need to understand that if greed impacts generosity, falsehood ruins fellowship. Fellowship with God, why? What is the Holy Spirit called by Jesus? The spirit of truth, again and again. What does Jesus say about himself in John 14, verse 6? I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. What does Jesus say? This, the Son of Man set you free, you will be free indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. But whoever sins is what? A slave to sin. When we think about the falsehood, uh, the reality of lying here, um, we need to understand that this is deeply problematic. I, now, in watching uh, that 
TED Talk this morning on the truth about lying, I went on to read a really fascinating article in Psychology Today about lying, and they all say the same thing. Almost all people lie daily. And when I read that, I was like, that's offensive. That's not true. I'm, I follow Jesus. I don't lie. And then, he, uh, and, and then I'm like, I just lied. And then, uh, and then I was struck by, uh, he gave examples of, in this TED Talk of, of ways that we lie that we don't even think about it because we as human beings lie for, he says, and this was interesting, statistically men lie primarily about themselves. Surprise. Uh, if that's not being played out in, in our media right now in profound ways, it's like, I mean, we, we live in seriously an age of spectacle. It's, just, it's incredible. And that women often lie to protect relationships. But lying is lying. Where there is lying, there is, there is a, a rejection of truth. And truth is embodied in the person of Jesus and the Spirit himself. He says, and when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. But when we live in lies, we live in non-reality. And one of the ways that we lie, so I was thinking, I'm like, how do, what, I mean, what, is, what do you really consider a lie? And I realized that I've rationalized lies as being, I don't know, I like words like hyperbole or, uh, you know, um, enhancements or, <laughs> or, you know, or even, maybe I would even use the word Interesting. Um, but I, I, I think of this, uh, this is a classic example of use of how we, how we often lie. Um, are you, uh, are you, are you on your way? Are you coming home on my way? Yeah. On my way is a phrase that I have used many a times while sitting on my butt. Uh, so, and so, and then my wife has gotten so privy to my, my quick answer of on my way to ask the, the follow-up text message are you really on your way? And even then, I'll get up. And in my mind, that means, yes, I'm on my way. When really, I still haven't even left the building. Dishonest. Uh, They found that 90% of men on dating services lie about their height. And then I got convicted because I, I realized that I've always told everyone that I'm 5'11", 5'11 and a half, and I realized that there's, I've been saying that for so long that I might possibly be 5'10 and a half. And then I got really upset <laughs> that I've lied to the point of believing my own lies about myself. And now I feel like I need to have my wife measure me when I get home. I was super stressed out. I like pitted out before I even left my couch this morning working on this message. And so all joking aside, we think of the little ways. Here's another way. How many times have some of you, and I'll just mainly point my fingers at my staff right now because they're all so nice, have said, Josh, that was a great sermon, when in reality, while I was preaching, you're like, that sucks. (laughs) Cam, if it sucks, you better tell me the truth tomorrow. (laughs) And how many times have I done that? We don't want to hurt people's feelings. But here's the thing. How do we actually build an atmosphere of honesty? And what the sin of Ananias and Sapphira tells us is that God hates lies because lies actually, no matter how right it may seem in the moment, actually rob us of real, true community. How do we speak truth to one another when it's difficult truth? Well, you have to be so other-oriented that the other trusts you in speaking difficult words where we love each other so much that we know that we can speak difficult words because you would never question whether or not I love you or believe, in, or believe the best about you. 
But you see, often we live with so much pretense that we do not speak the truth to one another because we do not have the relational bridge necessary to speak that truth. And I think that this is deeply problematic. And God is making a very severe point in the very beginning of the church. I need you to understand that falsehood ruins fellowship. That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That you do not sin into a vacuum, but when you sin, it impacts everyone around you. And our witness as a community of faith is dependent upon our willingness to walk in the light as God is in the light. And I think that's super important for us to remember. I love this quote from N.T. Wright on lying. I think it was super profound. He says, the real deep level problem about lying is that it misuses or abuses the highest faculty we possess, the gift of expressing in clear speech the reality of who we are, what we think, and how we feel. It is, as it were, the opposite of the gift of tongues. Instead of allowing God's spirit to have free reign through our faculties, which is exactly what tongues is, where they become so filled with the spirit that the spirit takes control, they become conduits of God's glory. However, briefly, at the intersection, oh, excuse me, so that we praise God in words or sounds which enable us to stand, however, briefly, at the intersection of heaven and earth, when we tell lies, we not only hold heaven and earth apart, we twist earth itself so that it serves our own interests. It's a powerful, powerful quote. When we lie, we not only hold heaven and earth apart, we twist earth itself so that it serves what? Our own interests. Greed and lying were not the only problems of Ananias and Sapphira. And I would say that the deepest sin, which is the outcome of the first two, uh, and it is wrapped up in the singular definition of sin, they were self-serving. They made themselves their own gods. And in this moment, they, they grieved the Holy Spirit. And God's judgment came quickly and severely. But they were marked by hypocrisy. There's no doubt that the presentation that they were giving up, all that they had was a false humility uh, that, that Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, saw through immediately. And this is a hypocrisy. And what hypocrisy does is it distorts holiness. Hypocrisy is when we present ourselves in a particular light to achieve a particular goal that is not actually true to who we are. I think this is a dangerous thing. I, I was thinking about this in my, in my 20s. That was a genuine uh, mark of of the music industry, I, I kind of had a character that I played as a musician. I never would tell people what I did nine to five. Like, I didn't want people to know that I worked for Princess Cruises, selling cruises to people on the East Coast, specifically, like, elderly cruise trips. Like, that's not a sexy rock star job. Uh, and so I tried to play out this mysteriousness. And, and it was funny, I realized that everybody played the same game. When you went to a club, uh, on a Friday night or Saturday night to watch a band, it was, you never ask people what they did for a living. That's like insulting. They want to present themselves in a light. You put on your best clothes. You want to present yourselves uh, in a particular light. But look at the equivalent of that today. I was thinking about how much I did that earlier, but then I was realizing, look at the ways that we use social media to present ourselves in a particular light. Instagram is the ultimate in this. I, I can't even tell you how many people I've had to counsel who struggle with jealousy of friends based upon the pictures they place on Instagram as if they have nothing stinky in their lives, nothing, nothing yucky. I've always wanted to start an Instagram account that just took pictures of myself right when I wake up, uh, you know, 
doing laundry, like just unsexy, unattractive things, like, you know, flossing. I thought that would be a good one. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, checking to see if you have BO. Those, nobody posts those pictures. Uh, but I think that this is, a, this is the element is that we live in a culture that's built on spectacle and we have bought into that same lie and we have turned our lives into to hypocritical spectacles ourselves when we're honest. I've seen it in my own life. Nobody wants to look unimportant. Look at the battle right now between the White House and the news media over image, over how we're being perceived by people. I think that this is an incredible time in which we live. But I think it's funny, we can look at those things and say, that's crazy what's happening there. I don't think we have to look that far before we can find it in our own lives. It may be in a more exaggerated form on the television screen, but I'm sure that we can find the inklings of it because one thing is for certain, everybody is marked by this little thing called sin. And sin plays itself out in a million different ways. But what I need you to understand is that God has called us not to live under the control or reign of sin, which brings death, but he, comes, he calls us to live under the reign and the control of the Holy Spirit, which brings life and life abundantly. Hypocrisy distorts holiness. And here's the thing that I want you to understand is that when we live in that hypocritical fashion, when we live dece- um, deceiving others and being deceived ourselves, when we live greedy, self-centered lives, what we actually open our lives up to is something that Peter points out. And I don't want you to miss this because I think it's super important. But notice what he says. What does he say to Ananias in verse three? Why has, who? What does he say? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's, there's something I want you to note about this because basically, if I could borrow from Jay Sidlow Baxter um, from uh, his beautiful 365-day devotional that was written in the 50s, one of my favorite lines in that devotional that, I, that always has stuck with me is he said, there is nothing sadder than when God's servant becomes Satan's tool. He wrote that in the 50s. Now, we've taken that term tool, and millennials really love that. It's just a way of dissing people. Uh, But it's true. It's pathetic when God's servants literally become means by which Satan accomplishes his goals. What is Satan? Who is Satan? What does Jesus refer to Satan as in in John chapter 8? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the what? Truth. Because there is no what in him? Truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And here is what Peter has pointed out. Is Ananias and Sapphira have given into greed and dishonesty and hypocrisy. And in that rebellion against the very spirit that is within them, they have given literally the spiritual enemy of the church, the devil himself, a foothold in their lives. Now, let me be very clear. If Satan died today, you will continue to sin tomorrow. But let me also be clear that the church has always believed that there is a real personal evil, that there is a battle between good and evil for the souls 
and for the reality, for the outcome of humanity. And we need to understand that we are in, in the midst of that battle. Paul said, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness. And when we hide in the darkness, we give a foothold to the devil. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give a foothold to what? To the devil. And I think that Christians, you may not, we may not like the idea of being possessed, but we can definitely come under spiritual oppression where the devil, who is a deceiver, blinds us to our own sin. If we refuse to repent of it, to actually change the direction, there is a point where you will no longer feel guilt from it because your eyes will become darkened by an unwillingness to come into the light. We do not want to be blinded and destroyed by sin. I have seen sin destroy Christians who refuse to confess, who refuse to repent, who refuse to turn from their ways. And before long, they have found a way to justify that behavior. And it does great damage to them. It does damage to those around them. It does damage to the church. And it does damage to the witness of the gospel uh, as a community of faith. I think that this is important for us to understand. And I don't want us to be, as God's servants, to become Satan's tools. Notice what happens when the judgment comes. God strikes these two dead. And I believe that he just simply fail, come be with me. We need to understand that the gospel is not built upon our performance. The gospel is not built upon you trying really hard to live a holy life. The gospel is built upon a recognition for all, the, for all of us who find this passage distasteful because of God's judgment, let, it, let me remind you that Jesus is both the judge and the judged on our behalf. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so here is where the offense comes, is when we have accepted the gift of God's grace into our lives. He has empowered us by his Holy Spirit and given us all that is necessary to live differently. And what does Paul say? Should we sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Do we not understand that the wages of sin is death? And he wants the church not to be a vessel, a vehicle of death where we live as hypocrites pretending to be ones who are responding to the gospel of grace when in reality we are taking advantage of that grace. Because the freedom that the gospel provides for our life is not the freedom to do what we want, but it is the freedom to do what is right. And God has called us to something bigger, something better. I believe the judgment came in the early church for this particular line. It says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of those things. I want to just close with this, this statement. I think that some of us, many of us, have gotten way too comfortable, too chummy with the one who spoke and the universe left into existence. I think one thing that the evangelical church could use uh, a, a greater dose of is a more intense reverence for the God in whom we worship and serve. He is the creator of the universe. There will be a day when every knee will bow before King Jesus. There will be a day when we will give an account for everything that we said, everything that we did, even everything that we thought. And we need to understand that that should create within us fear. But here's the beauty of the fear of the Lord. Only the fear of the Lord can cast out all other fears. Because we are told in Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. We can't think that just because we haven't been struck dead for the times that we have been greedy, for the times that we have lied, for the times 
that we have played the hypocrite, and many of us will do it today and will do it again tomorrow. What we instead should be doing is it should create within us a holy fear, not a fear that causes us to run away from God, but it creates a desire to stay so close to him that we nestle into his love, his grace, his forgiveness, to come into the light, to allow his love to expose anything that is unworthy of him in our lives, that we might be a holy community by which the gospel goes forth because the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life and Jesus Christ has come to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. So my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a church that would be quick to confess and even quicker to repent, to change direction. If God, by his spirit, has illuminated within you hypocrisy and sin that needs to be dealt with, deal with it today. Don't put it off. Do not become numb. Do not become hardened to God's call because we will give an account. He may not strike you dead, but he will judge what we have done and everything will be judged in the light of the gospel. All judgment has been taken in by Jesus. But when we live in continual rebellion against Jesus, we are essentially taking the cross and dragging it through the mud. May we live in the light of the gospel, not not free to do what we want, but free to do what is right as we live life and live it abundantly. Amen?